Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. Thank you so much for lending me your ears. And the only non-renewable resource you possess that, of course, is your time. If you were new here, man, I hope that you get a ton of value from this episode. And I want to just say thanks for giving me a chance to earn your attention. Today's guest is actually a first-time guest who I only had a chance to interview for a very brief period. So we're doing a little bit of a different interview or a little bit of a different session, if you will. Bob Blue, many of you may recognize as the chairman of the board, president and CEO of Dominion Energy. Dominion being one of the largest utilities on the eastern seaboard and a huge purchaser and developer of clean energy over the last few years. I had a chance recently to sit down with Bob and talk briefly about his vision for clean energy at a utility that is leading, but also where he has his own set of challenges deploying clean energy. Uh, I wish that I had had insight into all the things that you'll hear for the, for the 50 or so minutes following my interview, because he goes really deep on some very interesting perspectives that he and his team have gleaned from the captain's chair at Dominion. And I think you're really going to enjoy it. So it is his, it is my interview from the Suncast Media Zone live at the UNC Cleantech Summit a few weeks ago here in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and then followed by his keynote address, which followed immediately after my interview in the main session, in the main hall of the Clean Tech Summit. Thank you to Greg Ganji and the team for releasing this uh, keynote to us. If you have not already seen the playlist of all of the interviews that we did at the Media Zone, we have published it over on YouTube. We'll link to that in the description as well as the show notes so that you can go check out all the interviews we did on site at the UNC Clean Tech Summit. And of course, you can also see this episode and the full broadcast of Bob's keynote right there on the YouTube playlist as well. Just look for the UNC Clean Tech Summit playlist. If you like this kind of content and this is your first time here, well, I hope you'll subscribe to the show because that'll help you not miss our twice weekly content just like this. Practical tactical advice on Tuesdays and these are long form executive profiles on Thursdays. Of course, you can always check out more than 590 additional founder stories and startup advice for your clean energy career and business over at mysuncast.com. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to this live broadcast replay from UNC Clean Tech Summit here on Suncast. Good morning. We are here live at the University of North Carolina Clean Tech Summit, kicking off today with an interview with Dominion Energy CEO Bob Blue. Bob, great to see you. Thanks, Nico. Great to be here. Bob, you run one of the most forward-leaning, I would say, aggressive towards clean energy utilities, regulated utilities in the United States, probably in the world at this point. Dominion has leaned heavy into renewables. Under your leadership, how would you characterize the direction of the company towards clean energy as a utility? A lot of folks don't look at utilities and think, oh, they're going in the direction of decarbonized grid. Yeah, I'm, uh, probably some people think of utilities as stodgy, which was an answer, by the way, to a clue in yesterday's uh, New York Times crossword. Right, for stodgy. <laughs> but we're not stodgy in our industry. We've leaned forward for some time, and our company has been leaning forward for some time. We had started an a standalone environmental group at our company back in 1970. Wow. But really, four or five years ago, 
prior to me becoming CEO, Tom Farrell was still CEO, we started leaning in because we realized that technology had matured to a point where this is going to work for our customers. Mm -hmm. uh, solar is going to work for our customers. Uh, maybe more significantly given our geographic location, offshore wind is going to work for our customers. And so uh, we made the decision to start layering in those kinds of renewables because it's what our customers want. Now our customers want reliability, that's always going to be job one for us. Uh, they want affordability, but when the technology evolves to a point that we know we can do this reliably and affordably, that's exactly what we're going to do. So we're now developing the largest offshore wind farm in the Atlantic, and uh, that project is going really well for us. So we're taking advantage of the resources that we have available where we are. Yeah. Uh, and we also are responding to public policy. The Virginia legislature made a decision a few years ago to really lean into renewable energy, which we supported for the reasons that I just described. And so we're making progress along those lines every day. So we have a net zero goal by 2050. We've got interim targets that we're well on our way toward achieving. Uh, the fact is we've reduced greenhouse gases at Dominion Energy, our own emissions by more than 40% since 2005. And we see a path to getting to net zero by 2050 uh, in a way that's going to work for our customers. Bob, for those who are unfamiliar, could you briefly discuss the service territory and yes. the breadth of services of Dominion Energy? Absolutely. We serve about 7 million customers. We operate in 16 states, but our, the customers that we serve directly are uh, primarily in five states, and roughly half of them, of those 7 million, are natural gas customers and half are electric. So electric primarily in Virginia and South Carolina, a little bit of North Carolina, and then natural gas in Utah, Ohio, the Carolinas is where the bulk of our natural gas customers are. Bob, where do you see as a utility leaning so far forward into a decarbonized grid, a net zero future, Dominion's leadership from a utility's perspective? Where's the gap that you fill that you hope other utilities will be able to follow? And, and let's be clear, other utilities are Certainly. moving as well. So I, I don't want to suggest I'm, uh, anything, I'm positioning you, not Bob. <laughs> but I, I'll tell you where we really differentiate ourselves, yeah. I think, is a little bit in what I talked about in the offshore wind scale. Okay. We have a project that we're advancing, and again, we have the benefit of geography, but if you're a utility in the southwest of the United States, then you've got a solar advantage. Well, what yeah. we have is an offshore wind advantage. And being able, again, to do this in a way that uh, maintains the reliable service that we've been able to achieve. And then, I, you know, on the, on the gas side of our business, because we shouldn't forget that, uh, the natural gas side of our business, uh, we're a leader in renewable natural gas, which is, uh, in our case, agricultural. So right. Uh, methane is emitted from hog and dairy waste. It is a potent greenhouse gas. If we capture that and put it in the pipeline, that's actually carbon negative. So that's an important way for us to offset a carbon emissions at the gas side of our business. We're a leader in that business. Uh, some folks in, on our team made a smart decision some years ago to get into that, and we're doing very well there. Well, we've here in the Carolinas been watching the progress of Dominion with regards to solar. There are lots of tailwinds, so to speak, with the IRA, but we're conscious that the solar community has its challenges across the eastern seaboard. Where are the challenges and the opportunities that you see right now specific to the solar sector? Well, supply chain continues to be a challenge, and that's getting addressed, but it takes some time. So access to panels, price of panels, mm -hmm. Uh, continues to be a challenge. And uh, a new challenge, relatively new, that we're seeing in Virginia and the Carolinas is local opposition mm -hmm. based on land use. NIMBYism. Correct. And yep. th these are issues that we've dealt with at our company for many, many years. Yeah. And what we've learned uh, over the years is it's critical to engage early with communities, communicate clearly, be very transparent, and work these issues out. But those are going to continue, I believe, the, the land use issues are going to continue to be uh, challenges for us on the solar front. But the opportunities are substantial. Again, our customers uh, want us to provide uh, cleaner energy and solar has become a key part of our ability to do that. That's not going to change. You mentioned in a discussion previously that a, an obstacle we need to overcome, and it's not just uh, in the Dominion territory, but nationwide, 
is permitting. Yes. What can a utility do in a jurisdiction to help with permitting? Well, I, it's back to exactly what I just said. Uh, I talk about the need for reforming the process, making mm. it faster, allowing more, you know, we're gonna have to get permits for projects from a host of agencies. Yeah. They need to work in parallel rather than sequentially. That would help a lot. But it's incumbent upon us as a company to do our part as well. Yeah. And that gets back to early communication, clear communication, and we've demonstrated an ability to do that. Uh, if you look back to offshore wind, that project also involves a 17 mile onshore transmission line through Virginia Beach and Chesapeake, Virginia, very populated areas yeah. uh, just across the line uh, from North Carolina. We've been able, thanks to thousands and thousands of meetings and communications by letter and email, to find a path that seems to work for people. We had very little opposition to that route. So it yeah. is possible to do, but it requires a lot of work, a lot of time spent on the ground. It's incumbent upon us to do that. We need a little help in the permitting process generally too though. Bob, recently you received A's in not one, but two categories for the Carbon Disclosure Project. Talk a bit about what that means for Dominion and just give us a sense of the progress in that direction for Dominion as, at a strategy level? We do our work on the environment because it's the right thing to do. Mm. We comply with all environmental laws and regulations, but we understand that our customers are looking for us to go above and beyond. We don't do it for external recognition, but mm. external recognition is nice. And the Carbon Disclosure Project is an organization that evaluates uh, companies, in this case, for their disclosures and work related to uh, greenhouse gases and related to water use. And we received an A rating from them in both of those categories, which is rare. 2% yeah. of companies get an A rating on either one of those, and we received both. I think it's a sign, it's external validation that what we're doing is working, and we need to keep it up. Bob, I'm impressed with the work that Dominion is doing. I do believe that Dominion serves as an example and a leader across the United States, and it doesn't come without its challenges. My hat's off to you for being at the leading edge of the clean energy revolution. I want to thank you for joining us here at the Suncast Media Zone, and I hope that your time at the UNC Cleantech Summit is fruitful. Thanks a lot, Nico. Appreciate it. All right, so that was my interview, as promised, and following is the keynote with Bob. Now, Bob was introduced by Mickey Derrick, Managing Director for Accenture's North America Utility Group. So the first voice you'll hear in a moment is Mickey, and Mickey is introducing Bob, of course, then Bob takes over, and this is a wonderful 55-ish minute conversation. Stick around, you're gonna learn a lot. Good morning, everybody. Uh, it is my great honor to introduce uh, Bob Blue today. Uh, he's the chair of the board and the president and CEO of Dominion Energy, which is a huge sponsor of this event. Bob has been in his role for the last uh, three years, and before that, um, actually before his latest role, we got a chance to work and the power delivery when he was a president there. So I'm, uh, I'm very thankful for the opportunity to do this. Uh, Bob's experience is extensive. He started at Dominion in 2005 and had uh, many leadership roles around regulatory, public affairs, corporate communications. And before that, he worked uh, in the office of the Governor Warner in Virginia. So I will let him introduce the rest of his resume, especially his alma maters, because I think it matters, but I'll turn it over to Bob. Good morning. Thanks, Mickey. Uh, when I found out that I would be doing a moderated conversation with Mickey, I have to say I got a little nervous because when you, you, know, when you have consultants come and work and help your company, some of them, their approach is to tell you things uh, that they think you want to hear. That's definitely not Mickey's approach, as I discovered. He asks a lot of hard questions, so uh, I can only imagine what I'm going to experience here in a few minutes once I get a chance to finish uh, speaking. It's great uh, to be with you all this morning. It's great to have a chance to see uh, so many friends uh, from the industry. Uh, I grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia. I've been a passionate men's basketball fan uh, since I was a kid. So I was really looking forward to coming here. Uh, after Virginia effectively eliminated UNC from March Madness consideration. So I was looking forward to coming here and gloating. And then Virginia played Furman in the first round of the, so I don't know if we have any Furman uh, grads in the room. So uh, I decided rather than gloating, a better approach would just be to say, it's great to be here in Tar Heel country uh, today. 
It is worth noting that my brother lives in Chapel Hill and is a proud graduate of the law school here. Uh, I have a son who's in graduate school at NC State and my wife's family has extensive ties to Duke. So I feel like we do have the triangle uh, covered in the blue family. Uh, many of you all may be familiar with uh, Dominion Energy, but for those of you who aren't, uh, we're an electric and gas business with operations in 16 states. We have a little over 17,000 employees who are dedicated to safely delivering reliable, affordable, and increasingly clean energy to roughly 7 million customers around the clock. We've set a target of reaching net zero carbon emissions by 2050, both in our own operations and key categories of emissions from our customers and suppliers. Uh, we've built a substantial solar portfolio and we're developing the largest offshore wind farm, not just in the United States, but the biggest on this side of the Atlantic. In fact, it's roughly twice the size of the largest operating wind farm in the world uh, off the coast of the United Kingdom. Meanwhile, we're adding storage, exploring new technologies like hydrogen and small nuclear reactors. And we plan to do much more, uh, which I'll get to later uh, on our journey to net zero. I want to talk to you today about the energy transition, Dominion Energy's transition, the US power sector's transition, how we can get there, and what roadblocks we need to remove in order to do so. Because in the public discourse anyway, the clean energy transition in the US power sector is often presented as a false choice. On the one hand, we're told that cutting carbon-based energy sources is impossible, and any attempt so will destroy the economy. On the other hand, we're told the tradition carries the transition carries no cost at all, no trade-offs, no hard decisions. Both of these perspectives are flawed. We can achieve net zero, but to do so, we're going to have to roll up our sleeves and make some big decisions. Let me address the first part of this false choice because it's easily dealt with, this idea that you have to choose between the economy and the environment. The facts simply don't bear that out. So let's look at the big picture to see why. First, as many of you all know, our industry has been cutting emissions for some time now. From 1990 through 2020, which is the latest year of data the EPA has available, total carbon emissions in the United States fell by 7.3%. Many of you may know that. And I expect you also may realize the electric power industry is responsible for 67% percent of those cuts. The rest of the industrial sector accounts for the bulk of the remaining cuts. And the numbers are over 90% when looking at data from 2005 to 2009, before everyone stopped driving for a year because of the pandemic. Over the same period that emissions declined, 1990 to 2020, U.S. gross domestic product increased 71% in constant dollars. Electricity consumption also rose by 44%. Per capita income in constant dollars increased 29%. In other words, we cut emissions while the economy grew. We cut emissions while society used more electricity. And we cut emissions while the standard of living went up. So this idea that the clean energy transition in the power sector will wreck the economy or make power too expensive or force people to give up their lifestyle is simply false. Hard empirical evidence proves that it's false. Now, to be clear, much of the emissions reductions we've seen thus far have been the result of switching from coal to natural gas during a time of declining gas prices. But the reliability benefits of that natural gas give us the confidence to layer in more and more renewables and keep our progress going. Now, let me turn to the other side of the equation, the idea that the clean energy transition can proceed with zero friction and zero inconvenience. And the only reason this hasn't happened, some people argue, is because power companies like ours don't care about anything but profits. And that's no exaggeration. On CNN.com, you can read a piece by famous economist Joseph Stiglitz about how, quote, corporate greed is accelerating climate change. According to a tweet by one current U.S. senator, Corporate greed is pushing us into a global catastrophe. The headline of one recent piece in a New England paper read, what's blocking real climate action? Corporate greed. I could give you many more examples, but I think you get the drift. 
Of course, some of these same people also like to point out correctly, I might add, that building renewable energy is good for the bottom line for companies like Dominion Energy. They say there's a huge market out there just waiting to be tapped if only power companies didn't cling blindly to fossil fuels. I think you can see the contradiction, your smart students and people. If power companies care only about money and renewable energy is a great business opportunity, then why don't we have 100% renewable energy already? What is the energy industry waiting for? Well, that's a very interesting question. So I'd like to talk about three factors that affect the pace of the clean energy transition and some potential ways to make it go faster. The first is reliability. We're not gonna leave our customers in the dark or in the cold, period. We have to make sure that as we retire fossil fired units, we have other generation available to step in and pick up the load. And we're not alone in our concern about reliability. Affordability is important to our customers. Clean energy is important to our customers, but reliability tops the list every time. Reliability in our industry has been so good that people tend to take it for granted. But the Texas ice storm of 2021, localized blackouts along the East Coast Christmas of last year were painful reminders of what can happen when circumstances conspire against you. So as we replace fossil fired baseload generation with renewable sources that depend on the weather, we have to make sure we don't lose the ability to make the lights come on whenever a customer flips the switch. The second factor affecting the energy transition is affordability. I'm proud that Dominion Energy's rates are below regional and national averages and that they have grown more affordable over time. We'd like to keep it that way. So as we think about the clean energy transition, we have to remember that it is capital intensive. Although there's no fuel cost, new solar farms cost money. New wind farms cost money. Every new power line that connects solar and wind generation to homes and businesses also costs money. Particularly in a time of high inflation, we have to consider the effect on our customers' wallets, both in the near term and in the long term. Aside from reliability and affordability, there is a third important consideration, and that's the risk that customer energy needs and the push for the clean energy transition are happening more quickly than infrastructure can be realistically permitted and constructed in the current environment. The fact is these projects take years to build even under ideal conditions without supply chain issues or a tight labor market, but there are other delays. Well-intentioned environmental laws and regulations and other factors such as litigation and local opposition have made it extremely difficult for companies like ours to build significant new projects. Let me give you just one example. Back in 2011, we identified the need for a new transmission line near Williamsburg, Virginia, the Skiffs Creek line, it's called. Getting the transmission line approved meant multiple lengthy permitting processes involving more than a dozen federal, state, and local agencies. Many thousands of work hours, millions of dollars added to the cost. We finally placed the line in service in 2019 after eight years. The story doesn't stop there, unfortunately. Due to extended litigation, additional regulatory reviews continue today, four years after the line was placed in service. The years-long permitting process still hasn't finished and has created approximately 20,000 documents. And this is for a transmission line that's less than eight miles long, a transmission line needed as the result of the scheduled closure of a coal and oil-fired power plant. So I'll say that again, to close a fossil-fired power plant, Without turning off anybody's lights, we needed to build a new power line, and it took eight years to navigate through all the permits and paperwork, and we're still not done. And in case you're wondering what the debate has been about, it's about potential visual impacts to historic resources miles and miles away from the line. If you multiply this example by all the projects that will be needed for the clean energy transition, you can see how current regulatory conditions pose serious challenges. Now, exactly how many projects will be needed for the transition? We could spend a lot of time crunching the numbers. It gets pretty complicated. But in big picture terms, let's look at it this way. According to the U.S. Energy Information Agency in 2021, total wind and solar generating capacity in the United States was 193,000 megawatts or 193 gigawatts. 
That's about 17% of the total U.S. generating capacity, which is around 1,100 gigawatts. Now, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory conducted a study and concluded that to get to zero, we'll need 2,000 gigawatts of wind and solar, 10 times as much as we have today. In fact, 2,000 gigawatts is almost double the total generation capacity from all sources in the country right now. So basically, we need to build twice as much generation as we have right now using wind and solar, plus other generation from hydro, ge geothermal, and so on. Of course, all that power has to get from the generation site to the end user. So let's look at power lines, because the situation is very similar. Last month, Princeton University released a major study estimating what getting to net zero would require in terms of infrastructure and other factors. Jesse Jenkins, who's a professor at Princeton's Anlinger Institute and one of the principal authors of the study put it this way. The current power grid took 150 years to build, he said. To get to net zero emissions by 2050, we have to build that amount of transmission again in the next 15 years, and then build that much more again in the 15 years after that. That's gonna be hard to do, especially in light of the immense regulatory burden that is imposed on large infrastructure projects. If we as a country want to reach our net zero goal and prevent the worst effects of climate change, we have to address that burden. Now, please don't get me wrong. I am not saying Dominion Energy is against regulation. We aren't. I'm not saying we don't want to be held accountable. We do. I'm not saying infrastructure projects don't need thorough examination to protect the environment and the communities we serve. They do. Again, this is not a case of good versus evil. This is a case of good versus good. Our environmental laws and regulations were put in place for a reason. If you look at air quality in this country a few decades ago, you understand why we have a Clean Air Act. If you look at water quality a few decades ago, you understand why we have a Clean Water Act. Some of you all may be old enough to remember when the Cuyahoga River in Ohio caught fire. The flames were five stories tall. I'm not a scientist, but I know rivers aren't supposed to catch on fire. The laws and regulations we enacted to reduce pollution have proven to be a great success. Our laws protecting the environment are unquestionably a net positive good. But we have to ask ourselves, what is the most urgent problem facing us today? If the answer is climate change, and many people contend that it is, then I would argue we do not have time to squander, so we should use our time well. What would that involve? It would involve ensuring that all agencies and stakeholders adhere to a public and well-defined schedule, a schedule that allows concurrent reviews rather than sequential reviews. That alone would be extremely valuable. Using our time well would mean recognizing that each entity involved in the process has different expertise and different responsibilities. Clear communication about the scope of each review and information required would also be valuable. Using our time well would mean a streamlined effort among a host of state and federal agencies conducting environmental reviews. Again, let me emphasize, this does not mean we want no review. It doesn't mean we want a cursory review. We want a thorough review but one that has a defined beginning and a defined end so that we can move forward smartly in the direction we want to go. On that point, Ezra Klein of the New York Times recently had an interesting interview with Nicholas Bagby, a law professor at the University of Michigan. And Bagby makes the point that we've sort of over-lawyered when it comes to regulation. I'm a lawyer and I apologize to anyone else in the audience who's a lawyer, but what he says, is that there's a sort of procedural fetish, is the term he uses, that gets in the way of accomplishing what we want to accomplish. Bagby goes so far as to say that legitimacy is not solely, not even primarily, a product of the procedures agencies follow. Legitimacy arises more generally from the perception that government is capable, informed, prompt, responsive, and fair. Without endorsing Bagby's views on legitimacy, I think having a capable, informed, prompt, responsive, and fair administrative state is something that we all can agree is desirable. And I might add, this is not just an energy issue. You can see similar problems in housing in this country, for example. That's why these questions are hard. Good versus evil questions are easy. There's nothing to debate. 
Good versus good questions are the real challenge. So we're going to have to decide as a society whether we want to stick with some very painstaking, drawn out procedures, or whether we want a government that acts decisively to address the biggest problems our country faces today. I think there's a hunger for more efficient, more decisive decision-making by government, and I share that hunger. Now I'd like to zoom back in and shift the lens and focus to what Dominion Energy is doing within the current construct. First, as I mentioned, we've slashed emissions, largely by switching from coal to gas and replacing fossil fire generation with renewables. In the past decade, we've gone from zero megawatts of solar generating capacity to about 10,000 megawatts, either in service or in development. Technological improvement has been immensely important in getting us there. Among other things, improved panel efficiency and more advanced hardware have helped drive down the cost of solar projects our company builds by more than 80%. Our wind farm, CVAO, that I mentioned, will have 180 wind turbines, each more than 800 feet tall, 27 miles off the coast of Virginia. We're slated to finish the project in 2026. It will be able to power about 660,000 homes at peak output while avoiding roughly 5 million metric tons of carbon dioxide annually. Technology has helped a great deal here too. Over the past decade or so, improvements in materials, adhesives, and so on, have made it possible to double the length of the typical wind turbine blade. Old fiberglass blades have given way to carbon fiber and other much lighter substances. This dramatic increase in blade length, together with designs that are more efficient, translates into a significant increase in power generation. The types of wind turbines that we will install over the next three years will generate twice as much electricity per turbine as those in our pilot offshore wind project that went into service just a couple of years ago. By the way, we're also building the first US flagged offshore wind turbine installation vessel, the Charybdis, that will do the heavy lifting li literally for construction of offshore wind farms up and down the Atlantic. So far, I've been talking a lot about electricity, but we also serve roughly 3.4 million natural gas customers, including those here in the triangle. And we're committed to reaching net zero on that side of our business as well. Last year, we expanded our net zero commitment to include not just direct emissions from our own operations, what are called scope one emissions, but also from electricity that our company uses but doesn't generate, those are scope two emissions and three material categories of scope three emissions from both suppliers upstream and customers downstream. One way we're doing so on the gas side is renewable natural gas, which is carbon beneficial pipeline quality gas from waste streams, and biomass sources, including farms, landfills, and food waste. We've created two of the largest RNG programs in the country by joining forces with Smithfield Foods to create Align RNG, and creating strategic alliance with Vanguard Renewables and the Dairy Farmers of America. Through these programs, we're capturing methane from animal waste, converting it into purified natural gas that can, we can then blend into the existing natural gas system. End to end, the process is actually carbon negative, meaning that it captures more global warming potential than it produces. It also provides an additional income stream to farmers. One of our RNG projects is now operating in Duplin and Sampson counties, just to the south of here. It's producing enough RNG to heat 4,000 homes and cutting emissions by about 150,000 carbon dioxide equivalent metric tons per year. We're also conducting pilot projects to test the efficacy of blending hydrogen into our natural gas systems. We completed the first phase of a project in Utah in 2021 that confirmed extensive industry research that at modest blending levels, five to 10%, hydrogen can deliver safe, reliable, and sustainable energy without impairing appliance or system performance. We're expanding that pilot to field test blending on a broader scale. We're in the process of launching a similar test pilot at our facility here in Gastonia. And we've also joined with other utilities in the region to form the Southeast Hydrogen Coalition with the aim of securing funding from the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act creating a hydrogen hub. The Department of Energy recently reviewed the coalition's concept paper and encouraged us to submit a full application for federal funding. I probably don't have to tell you about the tremendous economic opportunity that presents for North Carolina. Another emerging technology we're very much interested in is small modular nuclear reactors or SMRs. 
We've included SMRs in our latest Virginia long-term plan as an available resource as early as 2032. And in South Carolina, we're including SMRs as a potential resource starting in 2040. SMRs have the potential to provide the crucial missing link in net zero plans, a carbon-free on-demand resource that we can cycle up and down to quickly balance the intermittent nature of wind and solar. And finally, we're upgrading our grid, making it stronger, more resilient, smarter, better able to handle the intermittent, sometimes bi-directional flow of renewable energy. I would add one other thing that we're doing. These technologies hold tremendous promise in helping our company and our industry reach our goals, but it takes people to develop the technology in the first place. It takes people to build, install, and operate the technology. And as the technology advances, the need for high-performing individuals willing to learn increases. So we've made it a point to recruit from the broadest and deepest talent pool possible. As a result, from 2017 through 2021, we grew our workforce diversity by 10%, and we intend to continue that progress. We're also committed to a just transition to make sure that no one gets left behind, and we have a number of programs to help employees in legacy industries. So for example, when we recently announced the closure of two of our existing fossil stations, we placed all 30 of our experienced craft workers into other positions. Not a single person was laid off. In fact, about a third of them have moved to become renewable energy technicians and will be retrained to support the clean energy transition. I'm very excited about where we're headed as a company. Our employees are very excited too. But I hope, as I've made clear by now, our industry can't do it alone. We've come a long way, but making our system carbon-free, especially in the limited window of time the best science says we have, requires significant public policy support. We're ready to roll up our sleeves and finish the job. Now all we need is the green light. Thank you. Have you been curious about utility-scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid-cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. Its built-in DC-to-DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. The tracker market is complex. But you want to maximize profits when installing or specifying tracker systems for your utility scale or large distributed generation solar projects. So use Trina Tracker with its innovative technology that can cut up to 200 man hours. Trina Tracker makes installations easier and faster so you can speed up installation times, reduce labor costs, and lower LCOE to achieve optimal project value. Learn more at mysuncast.com forward slash Trina. Hey, can I borrow your attention for just one minute? How many of you in the residential solar install game right now would really say that your workflow is built to win? You know, in the 2010s, solar was all about sales. I think that the winners of the 2020s is really going to be contractors that focus on operational efficiency. See, margins are getting squeezed and there's a ton of competition out there, but everyone has an opportunity to improve. Would you like to know the score? of the value of your survey and design process? Would you like to hear about the evolution of the installer workflow? Well, then I would encourage you to join myself and my friend Jason Steinberg from Scanifly next Wednesday, the 31st of May at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Or maybe it's this Wednesday, or maybe you already missed it and you need to go see the replay at any point. You are going to benefit from the insights that we're going to reveal the benefits of a tech-driven solar ops program, the transition from manual to digital surveys. It's all there. I hope that you will check in, tune in, register, and uh, throw us some hard questions. We always love it in our live broadcasts. Join us May 31st, 2 p.m. with Scanifly. See you there. Thank you so much. That was uh... That was that was great, and I love the whole uh, good versus good because there's really different ways to get to the same point. Uh, one of the things that that you were talking about is all the investments you guys are making in clean clean energy transition. But I understand you guys are doing a lot a lot with environmental programs to protect conserve water and protect wildlife. I don't know if you have any 
uh, specifics to share with, uh, because that's a part of the whole. Sure. Program. You know, I started at Dominion Energy in 2005. I had a full head of hair back then, by the way, just saying. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't believe that, Mickey. Huh? I don't know. And one thing that really struck me quickly, I did not know a lot about this industry. In fact, it'd be fair to say I knew very little. I was, uh, I had been working in state government for the governor of Virginia. And before that, I was a commercial litigator. But what struck me when I got to the company, the first thing that struck me was the, the commitment to safety and the safety culture. And shortly thereafter, the commitment to complying with environmental rules and regulations. And in many ways, I think you can think about them this, the same. You can tell, but we have our colleagues work around some dangerous products. Electricity at high voltages is dangerous. Natural gas under high pressure is dangerous. And you can tell people, be safe. And that's great, but that's not gonna achieve your objectives. What you have to do is train people and you have to have procedures and policies in place that become ingrained in the culture. And I've seen the numbers from before I started at the company to where we are today. And what, what was, you know, decades ago, hundreds of people who have an injury that would require some form of medical treatment is down to the teens now. And that's because of a focus and culture. The same thing is true with respect to the environment. The amount of attention that we dedicate to that uh, is incredible. And we've been doing it for some time. So we, as I understand it, I don't think anybody can prove me wrong. So I'll say it. We were the first company, first utility holding company to have a separate environmental group starting back in 1970. Uh, I had during my career at Dominion, the honor of being able to lead that group at one point. And you watch what our environmental professionals at the company do working with the people who are out in the field it's pretty remarkable. So, and the statistics bear it out. The water intensity, so the amount of water that we use per megawatt hour of electricity we generate, we've cut roughly in half over the course of the last decade, 15 years. A lot of that is because when we've built new generation, we've used air-cooled condensers instead of using uh, water cooling, um, which has proven to be uh, very valuable. We have a power station in uh, Southwest Virginia it is hybrid, so it can um, use as fuel either biomass or what's called gob coal. And gob coal is old coal piles sitting around uh, left over from mining operations. And when it rains, uh, chemicals leach out of those piles into rivers. So actually putting, burning that in a, uh, in a boiler improves water quality in southwest Virginia. Uh, and we've been able to do that. At our uh, Lake Gaston Hydro facility, uh, we've put in a system to allow eels. I know there's probably not a lot of people who are out there thinking, man, I really want to, I really like eels. We need to save the eels. But um, we do have a system in place to allow eels to get past that dam, uh, which is critical uh, for uh, their livelihood. So all of these kinds of things that we do are the result of intense uh, focus by the company on the water side. On the wildlife side, uh, we train, back to this idea of making sure it's part of the culture, we train our folks, if they see a nest that is in, sort of in the area where they're working, they stop and they contact one of our professionals to make sure we understand uh, what the rules require. Um, we're focused, as many companies are, on a pollinator habitat in right-of-ways that we have control over. In fact, I can see bees from my office, thanks to a company that I believe is still headquartered. I'm pretty sure it was founded in Durham called Bee Downtown. By the way, if you want more bee puns than you can ever imagine, go to their website. But what, what they do is they partner with companies to get uh, beehives. In, in our case, it's our corporate headquarters. I will say though, on that front, um, I have, you've been to our corporate headquarters right next to the James River. I have the unique ability occasionally to canoe to work, which is pretty cool because I live uh, about five. I did put the beehives right where I take my canoe. I don't know if somebody's sending me a message, but, but that kind of focus, these are, you know, we talk about big numbers in our business and, um, but that kind of focus on uh, the environment is just something that 
has been ingrained at the company from before I got there, but I've watched it become more ingrained and again, modeled a lot on the way we have focused on safety. Uh, and that, you know, the, the safety performance is remarkable to the company, but it's true throughout the industry. And you see, I know you see that at the yeah, other companies absolutely. you work with. It, it is important to your point. It's a very dangerous environment that people work in every day. So making that culture stick is, is critical. The, the the other piece that you were talking about is uh, you know, investment that you guys are making into the smart grid and the bidirectional uh, system, uh, but that requires a lot of broadband. It, it requires telecommunications, so all these devices can can exchange information. Especially, you guys serve a lot of rural areas, uh, so so there's this whole uh, concept of of rural broadband that I know you guys have been uh, on the forefront of. I don't know if uh, there's anything you can. You can share specifically about that and the intersect between smart grid technologies and the, and the broadband. I think if you, if you talk to governors across the country, back that many of them would tell you one of the top issues that they focus on is they seek to add economic development, particularly in maybe parts of the state uh, that are challenged, it's access to broadband. That has certainly been true. We hear that from the governors of the state where we do business. And we've heard it for some years. There's been a lot of focus in Virginia and North and South Carolina on uh, getting broadband to rural areas. And at the same time, as you noted, uh, we have a focus on making the grid smarter. The original thinking behind the power grid was large central state power stations that transmit and distribute energy in one direction. Generally, uh, for decades and decades, we wouldn't know whether someone's lights were on unless they called us. We didn't have visibility out to the edges of the grid. And that was okay. Uh, you build redundancies the right way. You make sure you have enough of a reserve margin. But now the grid is changing. More intermittent sources, a cloud cover uh, crosses solar and the output uh, starts to decline. We need to have a lot better visibility uh, into our system than we once did. Some of that is, you know, sensors and and associated with the meter, so so-called smart meter technology. But there's a lot of work, and I know Terry Boston's going to be talking later. I'm just a lawyer, so he's an engineer, and he'll be able to correct everything that I say that is wrong. But at our substations we need more and more uh, understanding of what's going on there. And it, this is not, there's uh, the, the, the possibility of any sort of time lag is not acceptable. So that's where broadband comes in. And so as we were thinking about our need to extend broadband to substations in rural areas, and we were hearing governors talk about their concern about uh, broadband throughout their states, uh, it just made sense when we do this to essentially have some additional capacity that would be available. We're, we're not interested in being an internet service provider. That's not our thing. We're not uh, good at that, but we are good at building infrastructure. And when we're going to be extending broadband to a substation, the ability to be this so-called middle mile provider, now making it much more economical for an internet service provider to extend into people's homes and businesses. So we're working now with the 24 uh, counties in Virginia. We, we have a, a program where we partner with an internet service provider in rural areas. We do our projects to get broadband to uh, our substations. Internet service providers are then able to take advantage of you know, marginal additional capacity that we build. And we think this has great promise for being able to achieve much more connectivity across um, the jurisdictions where we do business. It's a great program, and we're seeing it across the country as well. But the cost, again, you talked about the cost of some of these investments is significant. And when you're trying to maintain affordability of your bill, uh, I know there's been a lot over the last year, uh, federal funding that has been made available uh, to the industry and, 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 and working with the states as well to unlock some of that some of that funding so that you can um, maintain affordability. I know Dominion is pretty um, 
active in, in pursuing some of those some of those federal dollars. Uh, can you talk about kind of your philosophy around partnering with the state and yes and federal agencies around? I'll, I'll talk about a few specific examples. So the Infrastructure and Jobs Act, $1.2 trillion, has $8 billion uh, set aside for clean hydrogen hubs. And as a company that's in both the electric and natural gas business, this makes a lot of sense for us. H hydrogen has the ability, if we think about the, the long-term availability of both the electric and gas grid, and think about ways to try to decarbonize, hydrogen has the ability to help quite a bit there. I mentioned, for example, that we're blending hydrogen on a pilot basis into our, into our natural gas system. There's a limit on how much you can do there uh, because hydrogen burns hotter. So you need to make sure that this works with uh, people's appliances. And obviously, we're not going to do something that require our customers to replace appliances. But there is a safe level. We, we're quite confident. 5 to 10% you can blend in. That has an effect in reducing the greenhouse gas emissions, assuming, depending on how you, you generate the hydrogen. Hence, the idea of these smart hydrogen hubs. So... We've applied with uh, Duke and others in the Southeast for um, a potential grant there, as I mentioned in my remarks. Uh, we That sort of got the green light to move forward. We're also partnering in some of the other places where we uh, do business. But ultimately, I talked about what hydrogen can do on the natural gas side of our business. On the electric side of our business, there's also the promise of being able to use hydrogen to operate what is currently a combined cycle natural gas plant. If you operate uh, one of those with hydrogen, uh, then you start to address some of the, the issues that I've described with intermittency and renewables and also being able to operate the grid. Again, uh, not an engineer, but when, when I started in the power delivery part of uh, our business, our folks in our electric transmission uh, business made clear to me that the grid needs things spinning uh, in order to handle voltage, that a purely inverter-based grid, we just don't have the technology today to operate that. And so being able to operate uh, combined cycles and, and other things, I talked about nuclear small modular reactors, that give that kind of rotating mass to be able to um, uh, operate the grid reliably will be really critical. And aside from that, something that provides longer term storage. And I know there are going to be discussions about all these topics over the course of this conference, but battery storage is great. It's about four hours. Uh, we operate a pump storage facility, the largest in the world, that which is incredible and is critical to the operation of the entire uh, grid in the region. And we can go from nothing to generating over 3000 megawatts of electricity in just a few minutes. That lasts for eight hours. So that's, that's all great. But this idea of seasonal or long-term storage, hydrogen could be a real opportunity there. So uh, the Infrastructure and Jobs Act uh, gives us uh, that opportunity. It also gives some tax credits uh, for hydrogen to the, the next part of this, besides figuring out whether we can use hydrogen in combined cycle or how much we can blend into our natural gas system, how you create all that hydrogen and how the, the idea of doing it uh, carbon free, you know, I was talking about some statistics on how much renewable generation we would need to go net zero. If you're using renewable generation also to create hydrogen, now you're talking about it, even more uh, generation needed. Maybe you can do that off nuclear. That might be possible as well to figure out a carbon free way of creating the hydrogen that you can then use for seasonal storage and grid stability. So there's a lot left to do on hydrogen. The Infrastructure and Jobs Act uh, gives a jump start to that through, through that. Uh, there are also uh, tax credits for solar and wind that will, in the case of our company, inure to the benefit of our customers is that that just gets passed along. Uh, but that gets back to the point that you uh, raised at the beginning of the question. We need to make sure that as we invest in these technologies, customer bills don't get out of control. There is the danger. I think uh, a serious danger that right, we're, all, we're all regulated businesses and we've got to get uh, our bills approved by regulators as we should. 
there is the danger, particularly in an inflationary period like we are right now, don't know how long it's going to last, that regulators will say, uh-uh, uh, you know, we're, our customers are paying enough and we're not going to allow you to invest in these additional technologies that may be a little pricier than natural gas for because we don't want bills to get too high. That, I think that's a real danger. And so the Inflation Reduction Act really helps create what in the industry people refer to as bill headroom, the ability to be able to make these investments that are going to be really beneficial long-term, but do have upfront costs. You, you also mentioned the, the DNI uh, focus that, that I know you have been passionate about this for, for, for a long time. And uh, I feel like we're finally starting to make some, some headway across the, across the industry overall. Are there any specific programs, success stories, benefits that you can kind of describe? Because it's 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 really becoming a become a very important part of the corporate strategy, frankly. So, couple. Let me talk a little bit about why it's important to me and why it's important to our company. First of all, it's just the right thing to do. We, for much of our business, our customers do not have a choice about whether to do business with us. If you want electricity and you live in our service territory, you're going to receive it from us. And same is true of natural gas. So we owe it to our customers for our company to reflect the communities where we do business. It just seems like an obvious point. Uh, but beyond that, to me anyway, uh, there's a math issue involved here. If we're going to be the best company we can be, we need to recruit from the broadest pool of talent possible. And that means um, going out and seeking out uh, people who may not have felt like this industry was for them because they look at who's in the industry now and they don't see a lot of people who look like them. And um, I think that's a mistake on our part. And this doesn't mean that this idea somehow that we're not looking for the most qualified person. We're absolutely looking for the most qualified people. I think that's how we get the most qualified people. But we need to be thinking uh, about the pools of talent we recruit from. So we've talked about this a lot. And getting back to uh, safety or environmental, you can just say, "Our look, here's our goal. Our goal is... Uh, we want to be safer. Uh, we want to be more committed to the environment. Until you really start setting something measurable, uh, it's hard to make progress. So we said, we're going to improve the diversity of our workforce so that we get to 40% diverse, meaning uh, women and underrepresented minorities by uh, 2026, by the end of 2026. Uh, we set that goal in 2020. And it essentially meant we had to improve the diversity of our workforce by about 1% a year, which doesn't sound like a lot in, uh, uh, when you say 1% a year, but 17,000 employees, it is a lot. It's a, it's a heavy lift. But once we said this is, instead of just our, we're, we're going to be more diverse, we said we're going to set this target, we started achieving it. Uh, we're halfway there, at about halfway through that time period. And in my view, as a result, we've hired some really, really capable people. Not that the people who weren't working at the company weren't already capable. Um, we're just pulling from a broader talent pool. And we didn't set that goal, by the way, just sort of pull it out of thin air. We looked at the available potential talent. Um, we had a team look at that. So it really is a matter of uh, setting the target and then being very focused on uh, recruiting uh, and retaining. So this is, we started some years ago. Most companies have. Uh, employee resource groups. Mm -hmm. uh, they're great for retention. Also help us find a talent look in places that we might not otherwise look. So I feel very good about where our company is uh, on this journey. It's, it is uh, a lot of work and requires a lot of focused effort. But uh, like many things, the things that are the hardest tend to yield the best benefits when you stick to it. That's that's fantastic, and I think it's 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 important for us to continue to push push for it because it's otherwise, just to your point, when you when you look at the people that you serve and you don't look like it, just doesn't doesn't make any sense. The um, you talked a little bit about a part of the whole journey to transitioning to to clean energy is shutting down some of the coal plants. 
uh, and you talked a little bit about repurposing the workforce, um, but I understand you guys are at Dominion doing some some pretty interesting things with the real estate and and kind of redeveloping that real estate that is basically left uh, available once you once you pull out. I don't know if uh, we'd certainly we'd certainly like to. So um, the one example that's not our facility, but we have entered into a partnership in Virginia with the Nature Conservancy to put uh, solar on abandoned uh, mining lands, um, which we think is a potentially a great uh, use of that uh, property. As we think about repurposing our sites, uh, one uh, particular use that we're evaluating is the potential for small modular reactors. Mm -hmm. uh, I mentioned that in my remarks that we're looking at that technology. Um, those sites have transmission there already. They're not appropriate for larger nuclear, uh, but for smaller modular reactors, given the much smaller footprint, the different refueling needs, uh, they may well be an opportunity for us uh, going forward. The communities where we do business, that they've had many of these fossil plants for decades and they rely on the tax benefits and they rely on the jobs from those facilities. And every time any of us hits a light switch and the lights come on, we should thank people who work in the coal industry and in the natural gas industry because that, it's a, that is a hard job they have done. Um, but I think they're looking for more than our thanks. Yeah. Uh, they're looking for a job in the transition. And so, as I mentioned in our remarks, I, I feel very good about the fact that at our uh, Chesterfield Power Station, where we're closing our remaining coal units there, we were able to find opportunities. Um, we've we piloted this idea of having some of our existing uh, craft workers at fossil stations uh, move into uh, solar technicians, and it has worked out extremely well. Uh, I think it's going to ultimately reduce our O&M costs and uh, gives those workers an opportunity uh, within the company uh, to try something different. I had a chance to meet with the 10 or so folks that piloted this a couple of years ago, and, and it was uh, really uh, rewarding to hear their feedback. And so we are expanding that now. I would hope that those are healthier jobs too. It certainly, potentially, yeah. yes, exactly. But as you know, we focus on making sure all of our jobs are all of our jobs. The um, I know we have just a couple of minutes here, Bob. So, so maybe I'll give you just an opportunity to, to to kind of summarize some of the risks and opportunities that you see as we go through this journey to to transforming uh, to, to clean energy, and maybe leave us. Uh, leave, leave us with that. So, like many things, the risks and opportunities are probably two sides of the same coin. So, the good and the good. As, as you think about the, uh, particularly the electric side of our business, we're entering a period of greater electrification. I don't think there's much doubt about that. Transportation uh, is headed that way. For those of you all who don't drive an electric vehicle, I highly recommend it. They're really cool. They're awesome to drive, and the prices are going to are going to come down. But as we see more of that, and as we potentially see, uh, I, I was uh, uh, had a chance to talk with Arshad at, uh, last night, and he was talking about the possibility of manufacturing coming back to the United States um, because of just sort of thinking about supply chain, this idea of onshoring, uh, manufacturing coming back, transportation, electrification, other forms of electrification, and then all of us doing so much uh, on our phones and other devices that are creating more uh, uh, data center, we, we're going to head for a period of increased demand for electricity, uh, maybe like we haven't seen in a while, uh, which if you're in the business of selling electricity, that's awesome. Uh, I'm all in favor of that. But we need to make sure that we can reliably serve that increasing load. As many of us thought about our net zero commitments, we may have had one idea about how much electricity we need to generate. And now a few years later, uh, there may be more. So we need to be able to think about a way to do that reliably. We need to be able to build the infrastructure necessarily uh, necessary to do that. And then similarly, on the gas side of our business, I think we, we may use natural gas differently um, going forward, but it's still going to be critical 
uh, to being able to operate a reliable and resilient energy system in this country. And so I, I think there are going to be opportunities uh, for natural gas. It just may be uh, different for us than the way we've uh, done it before. Fundamentally, if you think about the United States power sector, we have, we've proven that we can do a lot of decarbonization. We have the opportunity to do a lot more. Uh, we just need to be smart about it. Uh, and we need to make sure that we do it in a way where we maintain the reliability and affordability of our product. Our company, our industry has been doing that for centuries. I'm confident that we'll be able to do that going forward. So a really exciting time to be in this industry. I would encourage those of you all who are students, come join us. We'd love to have you and get an opportunity to make a real difference for this country and you know, obviously for the world in the long term. And I'll just back that up with, uh, you know, with Accenture, we are actually a lot of the new students are now loving to work with utilities, too. So so when we when we hire consultants, you can't have them. They, they need to come work for us. But then they end up working for you anyway. Well, OK, if you want so to train them and send them our way, that's probably that's it's, it's that good versus it. good. <laughs> See, I told you he was, you know, he wouldn't just agree with everything. I said. Thank you so much for, for, for taking the time uh, to, to talk to us today and share some of the insights. I think. Uh, you will probably, as, as Bob say, said, hear a lot of these topics explored in more depth today and tomorrow. Uh, thank you for joining us today and, uh, and, and thank you for the opportunity to, to host this session. All right, Solar Warrior, that is a wrap on today's broadcast. I hope that you've enjoyed it. Broadcast, I haven't said that in a while, but that's kind of what it feels like today. Of course, we're bringing you insights from some of the live events that we have covered and that we did our media zone interviews on site for. I would encourage you, please go check out the YouTube channel where we have all the video interviews with Dan Sugar and Bob Blue and many more folks who were keynotes at the event, our sponsors who helped make it happen, CPS Energy and Brian Wagner, Jewel Case Eaton. It was such a great event that I hope you'll make it time for in your calendar next March. If you're eager to keep learning, well, you, my fellow Philomath, of course, can find the resources and highlights from this discussion and every other discussion, along with the social media links for our guests, the recommendations that have been made in today's show, including how to get to our YouTube channel, if you don't see it there in your description. All of that is over at mysuncast.com. I want to thank you for taking the time to be here. I'd also like to ask you that since you're going to be hopping online, would you please do us a favor and go to rate this podcast.com forward slash suncast and leave your enthusiastic five-star rating and review if you are already savvy enough for how to do that inside of apple podcasts or spotify or however you are listening just please be sure to click the like or the five stars and leave a review if your platform allows you to do so if it doesn't you can easily find a way to do it at ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast it's the fastest way to say thank you to us and to let others know they also should be listening to this show. Hope you'll come back next week as we always have our tactical practical insights on Tuesday and executive long form profiles like this one on Thursdays. I'd like to finally thank our sponsors who help make sure that you receive this content each and every week free. It only costs your attention and your time. Of course, you don't get that back. And if you'd like to learn more about them because you are appreciative of who they are and what they're providing. You could learn more about what they offer at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. And that's also where you could learn how to have your story transmitted to thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, just like they do. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, solar warrior. It's half the battle.